Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editor-in-chief of PR Week. going to guide you gently through the next 25, 30 minutes. Depends how interesting our guest is. And she's going to be great, by the way. It's Jennifer Connolly, CEO of Jay Connolly. How are you doing, Jennifer? Welcome to the podcast. Steve, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, I can call you Jen. You absolutely yes, can call Jen me Jen. Yes, Jen with two ends. Jen with two ends. Okay. Sounds good. Frank Washcook's here. He's our news director. Frank with 1K? 1K for now. Yeah. How are you, Frank? I'm well. How good doing. vacation? It was excellent. Thank you. You were foraging into the middle of this great country, weren't you? Uh, well, uh, interesting places you I know? was out west, yeah. I was uh, out where the buffalo roam. I yeah. saw the Grand Canyon for the first time. It was a good trip. Amazing. Sounds like fun. You must show us some pictures. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk to Jen. We're going to catch up with, some, with Frank on busy week post- Labor Day, lots going on, isn't there? Levi's, you kind of fail to see the uh, Just Do It, the latest phase of that campaign. Very interesting work. Brands taking a stand. Levi's as well. We'll talk about that. The tech giants are at the Senate, so that got rather buried this week. We thought that was going to be the big story. And Bob Woodward's got a new book out, and President Trump has been responding to that, and that's been dominating the news agenda. And WPP has a new CEO at last, so that's been confirmed. They also had their earnings out this week, so loads to talk about. But we're going to start with Jen. Tell us a little bit about your agency, Jen. What sort of um, areas do you concentrate on, and what's your sort of special source, special USP? So mid-sized agency, uh, offices in Chicago, New York, headquarters New York and in New Jersey, um, two satellites, one in South Florida, the other in DC, been in business for 15 years, got our, fo- got our start really focused on different types of financial businesses. So when I started the agency, I actually didn't really think I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I kind of fell into that um, and was very interested in focusing specifically on a niche uh, and had a keen interest on really understanding the business and the finances of a business because I really believe that if I was going to represent a brand that I had to understand how it operated uh, and how I could have impact. And if I could understand the financials and the business of that business, I could be successful for them. So focused on the finance industry as a whole. So private equity, venture capital, asset management, ETFs, mutual funds, you name it. Uh, And then in 2008, when I got kind of banged in the head uh, and realized- A lot of us did, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't much fun, was it? No, it it wasn't. Still recovering. Oh, yes we are. But that was a lesson for me um, in, in how I wanted to hedge. And so built a consumer practice group that took us obviously a lot longer. Um, you know, I used to joke uh, the reason we were successful is because nobody wanted to represent, you know, a mutual fund in an ETF, right? That wasn't what we all thought PR was, the sexy piece of that. But um, for me, it was impactful. And so uh, fast forward 2018, um, a growing, thriving consumer practice group um, and covering everything from F&B to travel and leisure, lifestyle, luxury, 
celebrities. Uh, we also do a lot of crisis communications and a lot of work on personal brands with CEOs of all types of companies. Tell us a little bit. You started your agency from your, your kitchen, didn't you? My Pretty bed. Much. My bed. <laughs> Couple so, of blackberries, a lot of paper. <laughs> Tell us about that journey and, and you know how big are you now? How many people work for the company? The last time I asked, we're at 76. Okay, so you've built an amazing business in that time. Thank you. Literally from scratch. Tell us about that journey because that must have been quite frightening starting out, you know, yeah. are you going to make it, you know, where's the next check coming from, etc., etc. So tell us about that journey. It's funny, when I have time to slow down, I actually think about it because there were so many things that were... I mean, it was a journey, and it was an experience, and I learned a lot, and I laughed a lot, and I suffered a lot. Um, I think... Sounds like working at PR, <laughs> <laughs> uh, You know, I owe a lot... Without a laughing. Anyway, sorry. You want me, I'll laugh for you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I owe a lot to my mentor. I mean, I, didn't, I don't know that I really believed in myself as a business owner, and I've thought a lot about this in my career. Um, I kind of fell into it, you know, where all of a sudden, I mean, I... I, I People aren't going to like me very much for saying this, but I don't believe for me that in-house PR is the right thing. So when I was asked by my client at the time to come in-house, I said, no, I want to at least, I want to be objective. I don't want to own, I don't want to be a one-trick pony, right? I want to be able to provide value to the people that I work with in the media, and so I'll be a consultant. That's really how it started. Um, Who was your mentor? His name is Lee Schulteis, still my mentor today. He's an amazing guy. Uh, actually and did something very innovative and disruptive. I love working with innovative and disruptive companies. Uh, started the first mutual fund to bridge the gap between the mutual fund space and the hedge fund space, uh, which actually created a category at Morningstar. That category did not exist before this mutual fund. So financial crisis hit it. Uh, it was tough and the fund was sold. But um, Tell us about um, communicating in the financial area now because, you know, let's be honest, it's pretty much back to normal, isn't it? The, the stock market is booming. People seem to be uh, doing rather well. Uh, uh, you know, the, the bankers, the, the hedge fund folks, they had to, and I don't think they've been top of everybody's, uh, you know, love list uh, of a group. So tell us about that and how you communicate in that environment, because uh, some could say they, they got away scot-free for causing something that really is, we're still dealing with the impact. A lot of American citizens. Are. Oh yeah, there's news today on Wells. I mean, there's news every single day. I mean, I think, quite frankly, it's not different than dealing with any other brand, whether it's a Fortune 500, a Fortune 50, it doesn't matter. I mean, I think dealing with financial companies, obviously there's compliance, there's regulation, you have to understand that, you have to make sure that you are communicating within those boundaries and those lines. But when you're looking at a business and you're looking at what they're trying to communicate, I mean, money, I laugh at this statistic and I don't have the exact data, but the truth is that people worry more about money than they do about dying in their health. So when I think about the responsibility of working with a financial brand, it's massive, right? Because they are dealing with people's money and that is obviously very emotional. So we always think about that when working with them. But I think, look, in the financial industry, people are innovating, they are inventing, there are new technology or fintech companies uh, that are coming to the surface and launching every day, um, and I think there's a lot to watch there. So listen, when I went to your website, I was very excited to see that you've worked with one of our favorite on the podcast, and that is the Mooch, a regular <laughs> topic of conversation. We'd love to have him as a guest, wouldn't we, Frank? Oh, we'd um, love to.
Uh, we might do a bit of a come down, coming to the PR Week studio. But um, tell us about that experience and tell us about um, working with Anthony Scaramucci. If I had my phone, I'd call him right now. We could have a little pop-in guest. That, that would be fun. Um, that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, he's, he's an amazing person. And uh, I had the great fortune of working with him uh, when he was at Skybridge. And we worked with him to launch Wall Street Week uh, and the SALT Conference, obviously. But, you know, Anthony's a person for the people, you know? And, and when we talked about what he was trying to do and just getting into politics, I mean, he, he did that because he actually really cared about making a difference. So I think he kind of went with it and, um, you know, how do you think the he rest reflects, is history. Yeah, right. How do you think he reflects on his, what, I don't know, nine day spell in the White House communications chair? The one thing that I love about him is that he's just, He's a positive. He, ba he, he bounces back, and he's a positive guy. And it's like, look, if you're not growing, you're dying. And we've got to, you know, for him, um, you know, how do you how do you not go down the rabbit hole, right? Kind of like his last book. It's the failures. He's learning from the failures, and you know, I'm excited for him and what's next. I know he's bringing salt back, so you know, I think that'll be exciting for him. Now, in your opinion, was was communications director just a very odd fit for him? Because that seemed to be the consensus out there. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I know that there were different roles that were tossed around, but I wasn't working with him at that time. So, mm -hmm. you know, we got kicked to the curb like everybody did. When I mean, there was, you know, in January of 16, it was, was it 16? Yeah. Um, we thought he was going to the White House then, as did, did, did the rest of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So when that didn't happen, I mean, we were killed working together at that point. How do you work with a client like that? Do you let them just roll with it? Because it's they're quite intuitive and natural or do you have to kind of rein them in or is that just not possible you know you've worked with a lot of big personalities how do you how do you um work in that with with people like that you know i'll tell you i mean and this is kind of like my own personal position or the way that i think they need to be supported but the first thing that i do is really just try to figure out who they are and what they need and know i mean you know the mooch like can you imagine me trying to tell the mooch not to do that or not to say that or you kind of my job and and you, you guys left this is the first podcast interview that I have done um, and I maybe I did one print interview in a local newspaper or something and, I, and maybe a couple of other just contributed content pieces but I view my job as very much behind the scenes my job is to support my clients figure out who they are, figure out what they need, figure out how I can help them solve problems, seize opportunity, connect them with other people. So I think the first thing that I always do, especially when you're going to work that closely with somebody, you got to have trust. I mean, I was texting, you know, with somebody the other day, a pretty high profile person who said, leave me alone, mom. I promise I'm going to call you the minute I finish this. And I was just, I'm like, this is hilarious, right? I mean, there, you want that relationship though. So no, I think you need to provide strategic counsel. You need to give them risk reward. You need to tell them what you're thinking. And I always need to be thinking 82 steps ahead of them. Yeah. I mean, I think that's when the communicator becomes the story, something's gone wrong. Agreed. And we've seen in this administration with Sean Spicer, with the Mooch, with Sarah Sanders, you know, they have become the story and that's... that's Tragic. Well, it, it doesn't paint the communications industry, I don't think, in a great light. You know, because I think you're right. I think the communicator's job is to be behind the scenes and is to make the client or the brand or whatever they're promoting or, or trying to represent uh, 
the star, as it were. So yeah, no, I totally agree there. One other high-profile person, Tony Robbins, um, another big character. What was? <laughs> what can you tell us about working with Tony? You know, he came. He, he's he's also an amazing person. You're gonna think every client I have is an amazing. And they're all amazing people, but no, Tony is unique in so many ways. Um, the most beautiful thing for me to. Uh, is to be on this journey with him and watch the impact that he has had on so many people's lives in so many different ways in so many different countries um, and I'm impressed and inspired you know more every day so just by working with him and, and seeing the good work that he does I mean this is a man who puts everybody in front of himself you know he gives endlessly relentlessly um, you know and he's just always thinking about how you know, how can my work impact people and move this world forward together? So Frank, one of the big stories of this week, if not the biggest, was the Nike latest stage of its Just Do It campaign. And the sort of broader context of that was brands taking a stand. We saw Levi's with its gun violence activity and other brands this week standing up for issues and aligning themselves with issues, which comes with dangers as well as benefits we saw and Nike's share price go down this week. But tell us what it was all about. It was obviously heavily involved with the 30th anniversary. Right. So Nike is launching the 30th anniversary campaign for the Just Do It slogan. And one of the stars of the campaign is Colin Kaepernick, who is a um, uh, former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. He's been out of the league since 2016 and uh, hasn't been on a roster since then. And I think he's been uh, best known in the past couple of years for uh, protesting during the national anthem, uh, protesting police brutality. So a controversial choice for Nike to put uh, at the front of their 30th anniversary campaign for their key slogan. So um, w there are a few ways of looking at this, which I pointed out in one of the breakfast briefing articles this week, and that's that... Uh, Apex Marketing Group says that it has resulted in more than $160 million uh, in exposure worth for Nike. Now, I, I know we, we hate that statistic, but it, but it is an interesting number, I think, to, to throw out there of what it's worth in mostly positive publicity. Of course, it's not all positive. There are a lot of YouTube videos of people burning their sneakers and whatnot. Um, but it's it's a very interesting, it's a gutsy campaign, I think, for sure. It is, and uh, there was an advert released with Serena Williams in it right. and um, um, LeBron. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm American sports stars. Uh, always a blank spot with me. But, um, and it's in the same week as, of course, the, the return of the NFL. So That's right. Uh, very interesting from a strategic point, Jen, that the brand Nike, is. they knew they would get a backlash, didn't they? They knew they would get the sneaker-burning videos on social. They knew they might get some... They knew they'd get backlash from the president. The share price has gone down. They must have known that, and that must have been part of the strategy. So what, what's your view on sort of brands, the broader issue of brands... I think consumers are saying they want brands to take a stand or to at least, they want to know where brands stand on certain issues and, and we're seeing more of this. But it is difficult, isn't it? Because you can, you can alienate a lot of people too. You can, and I think that's kind of the world that we live in today, right? I mean, we used to live in a world where it was okay. We could all sit here and have different opinions about everything and that would be okay, right? One of my favorite quotes is, everyone is entitled to their own opinions but not their own facts. And so, I think brands do have to take risks. I think that Nike, I mean, they have had him on their payroll for two years or right. something, right? I mean, this is a long time coming, so I can't imagine that this isn't 
uh, something that was thoughtful and um, it, it had, is part of a bigger strategy. And, and since we're all not privy to that, I mean, the right person to answer that question is the CMO or the chief. Yeah, brand sure. Chef. I was thinking more in the broader terms of a brand taking a view, you know, yeah. like, like Levi's or Nike, or it could any any brand. Like and Apple, especially, Apple, you know, there, there, there are a lot of brands. Too. And the, I mean, I look, I see it, and you know, sometimes I, it's 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 hard to categorize people, and I don't want to do that. But for sure, younger generations are looking to align and work with companies where they are connected on social issues and they do have purpose and they're connected to that purpose. So I think that was probably considered also. Yeah, I should point out one stat from this week is that Nike's uh, customer base tends to be largely under 35 and more diverse than the mean. So I didn't there you know go. That, so it's yeah. on brand. Yeah. Yeah. It's on brand. Um, yeah, and we're speaking here before the Thursday night game. So we'll yeah, and that's going to be interesting. That's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see how the what kind of reaction there is when the full two minute ad gets gets aired uh, on a national broadcast. I mean, if you look at the two minute ad, it's actually not largely about Kaepernick. You know, it's not he kind of narrates it. Yeah, and and he's more visible towards the end of it, but it's pretty inspiring with other stories as you go throughout it. So it'll be interesting to see the reaction of that when the general public and not just. Um, us in the marketing trade world start obsessing over it. That's the other thing, Jen. Do we over-obsess about this stuff in our little bubble? And do people out in middle America really care about some of these issues? You know, do they care whether the White House press secretary is acting in a certain way or whether a brand is doing something like this? Because that's where most of the customers are, isn't it? Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, I think, look, I wake up every single day and every time I see one of these stories, and obviously I'm a news junkie and I'm reading all of the time, you know, and I always say, is this news? Right. Why are we spending time on this noise when there are real problems to solve and real things to do and real change to, um, I mean, there's an opportunity for all of us to do so much good in this world and we get really stuck and focused on some of these things that whether they're socially driven or not, uh, but I do ask myself that question every day, is this news? Am I paying attention to this? Is this real? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll see how that one plays out and, then, and we'll watch how brands Tackle that, that conundrum. It's something we're writing about a lot on PR Week. It's one of the biggest issues, I think, for communications and marketers of all types. Um, that really overshadowed the big, what we thought would be the big story of the week, Frank, which was some tech giants appearing before Senate. They had uh, Jack Dorsey from Twitter there, Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook, and amusingly, I thought, an empty chair for Google. They actually set up an empty chair because Google wouldn't send, send anyone. So uh, talk us through that. Well, I think that the empty chair uh, with the... Google name in front of it sort of became the bad guy of the hearings. I, I don't think that Sandberg really stepped in it. I don't think that uh, Dorsey really stepped in it, even though his outfit was widely critiqued on Twitter throughout the week. But, um, no, that's a big thing with you, criticizing outfits. Yes. Guys. Well, I can't criticize his First beard priority. nowadays. So, yeah, so, um, yeah no, I, I think Google may have... Uh, may have erred by not sending somebody yeah, to I mean, this. We, I guess as journalists, we're always saying, well, if you don't comment on this story, then the story's mm -hmm. going to have a narrative and you're going to have no sure. say in it. Mm -hmm. It's basic PR, isn't it, journalists? It is. Um, but, and that image, you know, optics, an empty chair, right, refusing to sort of engage in conversation. And then a whole slew of stories about why and wonder, <laughs> and the mystery, why, yeah, no. Why it's... be defensive? Absolutely. Um, but uh, on the other hand, Google's doing pretty well for itself, so... We wouldn't mind some of their revenues because no, they, they've taken most of the media's <laughs> revenues. Um, and Frank, so Edward, not Edward, that's the uh, 
Mr. Chief Barton. Executive of Manchester United <laughs> Football Club, which is my... Though he, he was in the news uh, <laughs> last weekend. He was, wasn't yeah, it? but anyway, enough of my obsessions. Um, Bob Woodward, who's also yeah. an obsession of mine, because I grew up at journalism school. Um, All the President's Men was one of our books, obviously, that we read as budding journalists, and still one of the great books on journalism and films. Um, he's got another book coming out. So unlike the sort of Michael Wolff, Fire and Fury, which was seemed to be put together somewhat hastily, shall we say, this one you would expect to be a lot more, um, you know, fundamentally sourced and more thorough journalism. And it certainly has, as always with books these days, you actually wonder whether everyone, anyone actually reads the books or whether they just get the sound bites off of uh, the media and social. But talk, talk us through that, Frank, and how President Trump has. Yes, uh, Fear is the book by Bob Woodward coming out next week on September 11th. Um, and it is a much more thoroughly sourced version of that, you, you could say. Uh, Woodward is said to have hours and hours of t- uh, recorded interviews with people who used to work in the White House, things of that nature. Uh, so, you know, dealing with a totally different level, level of credibility in a tell-all book uh, than they were dealing with with Michael Wolff. Um, Jen, what do you think of this whole thing about anonymous sources? Because we saw a, an editorial, in the, an op-ed in the New York Times from an anonymous source within the White mm-hmm. House, which was you know, clearly someone quite high up and quite senior. And President Trump is always calling it out as fake news because it doesn't have a named source. Some might say that's a little ironic when he used to do his own fake um, sourcing himself and ring up pretending to be his own publicist. but. What, as a PR pro, what, you know, has this changed over the years? Are we having more anonymous sources, do you think, in stories, or has it always been the case? And I think, you know, when I think about the evolution, I mean, the business that I am in today is not the business that I thought I was going to be in today and is not certainly not the business it even was five years ago. Um, but I think throughout that evolution, the one thing that I know or that I can just, that I, I mean, I feel it in my gut and my heart is it is not about the source it's about well it's not about what you're hearing in the news it's about who it's coming from is it a credible source so I think um, there's so much news out there and I was thinking about this as it relates to my children right when we grew up and we were in a history class we read our books and we didn't sit there and question it and say is that true is that not true is right we like were taught history and we kind of believe what we were taught so when I think about my children growing up and having kids or, you know, them being in high school, uh, learning history or, or even history, the history of five years ago, they're going to say, is that true? Is that not true? I mean, what happens? So I think with an anonymous source, uh, it's difficult, right? I mean, and you want to look, I, I, I respect Jim and, and you would want to believe that he felt that that was a credible source, even if it he was going to publish it even if it had to be anonymous, right? I want to give him that. Um, I think what the anonymous source... Jim... Uh, op-ed. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think what it does is... The op-ed editor at the mm-hmm. time, yes, sorry. Yes, sorry. For um, who are not... Yes, I, I apologize. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also think that it's a distraction, right? I mean, it's now a distraction. Um, I want to see our country grow and thrive. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of pain and suffering. uh, And I think this is now just a distraction where we're going to start focusing on, well, who said it versus focusing on what needs to happen in this country right now and obviously in the world. Yeah, I mean, Frank, as a news editor, you have to deal with this every day. Yeah, right. And um, decisions about what to publish and what. 
how we stand a story on. Right, and Jen and I were talking about this before. Yeah. When I was first out of college, I was working on an editorial page. And um, at the time, I, I don't think we would have ever accepted an anonymous op-ed from anybody. But this is obviously a different situation. And a lot of things are different since then. So I can see more of a case for it now than I could have years ago and in this situation. But I think the caveat there is that this person who wrote it would have to be high up enough to be right. like a real decision maker, you know, as opposed to just uh, more of a supportive staffer. Yeah, and you'd like to think the New York Times is, uh, sure. if anyone's going to make the right decision on things like that, it is, is sort of, you know, the best newspaper in the world. So, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. Um, I just want, I would, I think journalists have got to make sure they don't become lazy, you know, and, and mm. start relying on anonymous sources all the time or default to them, um, because that can become a habit and, it, and that, that's that's not a good thing so um, journalism mustn't become lazy and it must be accurate and it must sort of if it's going to get over this sort of fake news and alternative facts narrative it's got to uh, it's got to get its facts right and it's got to act in, in a proper way and or it won't protect people it won't protect readers it won't protect their audiences yeah. i mean the fact checking process i can tell you now when i have a publication that fact checks the way i'm used to I'm in heaven. I'm like, thank, thank, thankfully, somebody's fact-checking all of this with me, and I'm able to sit down and, you know, I mean, I, I recently did this with Vanity Fair, and I was, I was, it was so refreshing. You know, it was, wow, I'm actually going through the story, going through the quotes, and, you know, it's almost ridiculous that, that I would have to feel grateful that that happened, you know, versus, I mean, us as mm -hmm. professionals, I mean, our job is ten times harder because the follow-up and the, you know, the follow-through to say, look, do you have this, is this accurate? Yeah, is this based in fact, right? Back to that quote. So um, it's certainly more intense uh, on in our profession uh, to make sure that we are also providing the information and the sourcing and the doing the fact checking to make sure that we're, we have an accurate article. Yeah, um, I just hope that the media business models still allow for that discipline within its ranks because it's there's far fewer people in the newsroom now so it's it is harder to do that for certainly sure. um frank let's finish on wpp they have finally confirmed that uh, mark reed is their new ceo and that came in the week that they put out their q2 earnings so uh, tell us all about it yeah, um, sort of welcome to the world, Mark Reed, and here's your mm. second quarter earnings, and they're not great in North America. And uh, the it. stock was down uh, pretty considerably, I think, on Tuesday morning, WPP's was. Um, it is his first earnings call as CEO. He had been operating as co-CEO since uh, Martin Sorrell stepped down uh, in April. Um, however, the PR sector did a bit better, up yeah, over 6%. Nicely, wasn't it? PR and public affairs did well, up over 6% in a quarter. Um, and so still operating on different P&Ls. Uh, Conan Wolf was up more than 10% in the first half of the year. Uh, Burson was flattish. So um, a lot of info about uh, how the PR firms performed at WPP in the last quarter and in the first half of the year. Interesting that, isn't it? They're still uh, rec reporting separately to the end of this financial year. Mm. Burson, Master, and Conan Wolf. So a slightly softer sort of start to the next financial year. Um, but Conan Wolf still powering through and doing that double-digit growth that really is... is uh, was one of the decisions to make that merger happen in the first place, you know, to bring some of that magic over to the person. Um, and also profits, you know, that's, there's no point doing revenue without making profits, and the margins are, uh, were uh, good too in PR. But yeah, overall, I think Reed's going to be a very different character to mm -hmm. Martin Sorrell, isn't he? And uh, yeah, he has got a job on his hands, with, uh, especially in America. It seems like the creative firms are, are you know, are, are 
I'm not um, not producing that growth at the moment. So it'd be interesting to see how he structures both the the agencies, the companies within the group, and also the individuals that are going to run it, and if he's going to you know bring in some new talent, make some uh, mergers of uh, brands, etc., etc. What do you think when you look at WPP, Jen? Um, it's the other end of the spectrum, but you know what's the value of a, a smaller shop, medium-sized shop, versus a big behemoth in a holding company? I'm proud of our independence. That's not to say. I mean, who knows? One day, maybe we'll have the yeah, great yeah. fortune of being part of uh, part of them. I think the challenge that we all have is just what is the agency of the future? You know, we're moving at the speed of culture. Our clients' needs are completely different than they were. I think we, you know, I can only speak for myself and my experience, but we've been able to just be quick and fluid and nimble and move and change the minute we see. I mean, we're always trying to be, we know we'll never be this far ahead, you know, that, but we need to be a step ahead or right there with the change, right? And so when you're small, you can do those things. You can shift, you can drive, you can you know, make a decision to hire a video production team because you need that. You see that's where it's going. You can make decisions faster. Um, you know, I, I'm proud of the agency that we have, which I think, you know, we thrive on change, we embrace change, um, constantly just trying to innovate and, and, and invent. Um, so I think, um, you know, we'll see. Yeah, you know, I was talking, I mean, if you look at someone like Ford, which is a big client of WPP, if not the biggest, you know, they still use smaller agencies and they, they love sure. working with smaller agencies to do work. They did some work over this weekend on uh, the, uh, around the hardest, around Labor Day, the hardest working person in the country and um, that was done by a smaller agency not the holding company so there's a place for everyone in that matrix and I sure. think the, you look at GM they chose some when they did their big agency reviews a couple of years ago they didn't go necessarily for the usual suspects you know sure. they did they, they want new ideas they want the best ideas and they don't really mind where they come from so I think that's very true and I love that energy yeah and it's, it's it is a challenge for big behemoths like WPP that sure. have grown so big so many different brands that and, the, and they're trying to sell clients things they don't necessarily want, you know, the horizontality thing. Okay, that's uh, us done. Thank you, Jen, for uh, being with us. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Frank. As always, welcome back. Um, don't forget a couple of customer services things. PR Week Awards are open for entries. You've got about three more weeks to get your entries in. Hope you've got yours uh, going, Jen. I October the 1st. I think we do. Oh, good. Look <laughs> forward to seeing those. PRWeekAwardsUS.com is the place to go, so you've still got time. And there are late entry deadlines too. Um, our conference is in Chicago on October the 18th. Great lineup of speakers there. We've got Jacqueline Parks, the CMO of MTV and VH1. Hanno Cabrera from McDonald's. Matt Maloney, who's CEO of Grubhub. Delu Jackson from Conagra, we've got Richard Edelman, the man himself, Kent Landers from Coke, and Janice Kapner from T-Mobile, Dave Sampson from Chevron, and many more. Go to prweekconference.com to check that one out. Um, don't forget our 40 Under 40 dinner as well. That's always a great night, and that's in October too. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.